Welcome to Books and Bourbon, where I, Katie, your host, bring you my love of books and bourbon with monthly takes on what to read and why bourbon is more than a great liquor. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today for this month's episode of Books and Bourbon. I have the distinct pleasure to introduce an author that I found through a list on, so many know, the former president's book list summer, and I picked it up and I started reading it, and I was like, absolutely fell in love with this book and actually just reread it while I was on vacation a couple weeks ago in actually the Caribbean. So I want to um, welcome Charmaine Wilkerson, the author of Black Cake, with us today. Thank you for joining us, and I'm so happy to have you here. <laughs> Hello, Catherine. Thanks for having me. It's I'm honored that you reread the book. You know, there's so many great books out there, and you know, I can barely get to my own TV <laughs> list. Yeah. Um, so to think that you've taken another look, I appreciate that. Yeah, I was very happy to. It was because I could be in the Caribbean, so it'd be a good book to reread and. Um, so yeah, so very much enjoyed it. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and this book as well, and we'll go from there. <laughs> well, I'm a bit of a late bloomer. I uh, have just started to write fiction in long form. This is my very first novel, and I started out as a journalist, a mostly broadcast journalist years ago, and then moved into other forms of communication. So I was fortunate enough to uh, write, you know, for a living most yeah. of the time, but it's very different. It's completely different. And, um, you know, even since childhood, I'd always wanted to write stories, what I call stories, fictional yeah. things, imagined <laughs> things. The wonderful thing about fiction, though, is your mind can wander, you yes. can make up stuff, but in the end, you're still mining the quarry of real emotions, yeah. you know, real experiences. And, um, as you know, I'm American and I lived in the West Indies um, for a number of years. My parents are originally from the Caribbean and now I'm in Italy. So this moving around the uh, sort of multicultural family within, you know, two, three generations, yeah. um, this has always had me thinking a lot about identity. So my book bears the name of a food, Black Cake. Yeah. But it's really a family drama with a bit of mystery thrown in. And it really focuses on the power of the story to shape our identities, whether that story is told or withheld. And that's what happens to the, the brother and sister in Black Cake when they basically discover that their mother has a hidden past yeah. and she's left them... Um, a long recording to explain that and what's going to happen to them and yeah. how will they see themselves yeah it, it was a very interesting story that I found um and it really got me thinking a lot about my, like my own family like I lost my grandma a couple of years ago and my one remaining grandparents is going through dementia right now for early onsets and go through that but I thinking you know 
it would be fascinating to have like this. Like, I wish I had sat down and had them record some of their history or written some of their history because even though they didn't really know their mother in this book, that being able to find out that history that, you know, obviously was very different than what they were told that growing up, um, it's, you know, to have, to be able to have that would be so amazing to have. And I kind of, kind of wish that was something I was like, well, I wish kind of, I reached out for that for my grandparents or something or even, but now, you know, my parents are still alive. So I can, maybe I could start with them and <laughs> do that oh, as well. Um, absolutely. Plus yeah. socially we're storytellers, you know, yeah. we want to hear other people's stories and we want to tell our stories. Exactly. Exactly. Um, for those that don't know, um, I've read a couple of your articles, your inspiration behind Black Cake. Um, if you want to tell my, our audience kind of what that inspiration was and what motivated you to write this book. <laughs> so I talked a little bit about the idea of identity. There are two kinds of motivation. The, the actual novel, I had a number of stories sort of growing in my computer, you know, mm -hmm. but um, the story that really began to grow and told me as a writer that I had a novel going was about these two teenage girls who were obsessed with the sea and um, were doing open water swimming in the 1960s on, off the coast of this Caribbean island. And that led to drama in their lives. Why? Because there was a basic conflict for them, which you see for other characters also across two generations, a basic conflict between the way in which they saw themselves and the aspirations they had as um, girls about to become women and what other people expected of them, uh, the stereotypes that other people imposed upon them as, as they grew, and the pressures. Mm -hmm. And that's really a universal story, isn't it? You know, you have your own image of who you are, and then everyone else's image. And one of the things I find fascinating is that you, you know, I think we're constantly navigating the two, between the two. Yeah. How do we see ourselves? What's expected of us? How do we compromise? How do we live with that? Um, it takes dramatic turns in this story, Black Cake. So the name itself, though, a lot of people think it's a book only about food, although anyway. food is very important, because the name comes from a traditional Caribbean fruitcake. And uh, that fruitcake is very similar um, to the British plum pudding of yeah. Christmas time. And that's because there's a connection in terms of colonialism and history but the ingredients are somewhat different. And a very key ingredient is rum. And many people also use port. The point is that this inspiration, without a doubt, the black cake sort of popped up as I was writing the story. Suddenly there was a cake. But when the cake popped up, I recognized that in my life, there had been a lot of thinking about food as a tool of memory. Food is a kind of language used in stories to convey culture, to convey familial connections, to help us to form our identities. My mother made a legendary black cake. <laughs> and like Eleanor, the mother in the um, story, she has this obsession with storing her fruits, you know, yes. <laughs> always having them ready for her annual black cakes. But she made not only the Christmas cake, which is standard for a lot of people who make these cakes. She also make, made wedding cakes, which is an, a, another tradition in the Caribbean. Yeah. And um, that wedding cake tradition and sort of the obsession with the ingredients and the making of the cake figures into the story. So uh, a younger relative of mine texted me on my mobile on one day asking for my mother's recipe. And when he did that, 
I was surprised that he would care. And that just started a whole train of thought about how do we decide, especially in a multicultural family or families who have moved around, mm -hmm. even from one state to another, how do we choose to hold th certain things closer to our hearts than others? Yeah. You know, what is it, what is that sort of mix between emotion, memory, and stated identity that makes us hold on to things? Food is one of the things that, that um, we hold on to and we use as a language, but um, other everyday objects, and I've explored that in essays, you know, it, it can be something that has no perceived value to someone else that speaks to you. Yeah, yeah. It's very true. I was thinking as I was uh, making Thanksgiving dinner, because it was just me this year, um, I was using some of my grandma's recipes and I was kind of thinking, I was like, I grew up in the Northwest, obviously not very far from the Southern, but so many of her recipes are very Southern because she grew up in Texas and my, you know, her husband, my grandpa grew up in Georgia and so many of the recipes that I remember thinking, not even realizing how, as I was growing up, how southern traditions they are and moving to the south i was like well these are some of like like her potato casserole hash brown casserole very popular here in the south cajun pralines that she does i was like that's not something you have, i have to saw like my grandma or my granny would cook who grew up all over the world she grew up in australia and then my grandpa moved they were in japan eastern uh east part of the united states canada so she lived all over so her were always very different so I always found that very fascinating the origins of these recipes and how very different and everyone's like well you've had southern food and I was like well yeah because I kind of grew up with that because that was the influence I had from my grandma <laughs> and that southern traditions in the northwest was always very interesting to me <laughs> well you see Catherine your life sounds like a little little novel to me because I'm always fascinated by the things that we think might be signs in our life or the the kind of con the kinds of connections we inherit without realizing um, you know, without getting into the details, you know, in the novel Black Cake, there's this kind of obsession with a certain color. Yeah. And it keeps popping up and it pops up among different people. And why is that? And you're thinking, well, is there some kind of genetic connection almost, right. aversion right. to this color? And so when you talked about that, the fact that you grew up in the Northwest and you sort of internalize these recipes from the South, of the United States, yeah. and now you're living in the South. <laughs> yeah, uh, it just makes me wonder which came first. I mean, did it sort of lead you in that direction because you thought you had a curiosity or affinity for the South because of the food? It's very good possibility. Yeah, you know, I never had thoughts to move here um, growing up, but when the opportunity arose, you know, I had a girlfriend that lived down here at the time, and there's always been that draw. Like I visited Georgia. I actually wanted to go to school there for the longest time and at Savannah College of Art and Design. So I've always had that draw. And I was like, ended up in Kentucky, but like, I love being able to explore. Like she grew up in, my ex grew up in Mississippi. So when we would go down there for visit, it was, I always enjoyed being able to explore, you know, those areas of this part of this world down here that's, you know, very, I, I always left, I grew up in a very bubble living in the Northwest. So being able to explore other parts is, you know, and getting to learn other languages and even though it's the same language, it's very different dialects <laughs> as you go farther down in the South and 
food traditions. Like I always laugh, like, you know, I'm pretty involved on Twitter and we have a lot of friends that live all over the country. Um, they joke about like spaghetti being served with fish is a very popular thing in certain parts of the South, but it's also ended up in like Chicago because of those that have migrated from the South to Northern areas. So it's interesting how that tradition, but then you hear things like, well, I would never serve spaghetti with fish. And I was like, well, that was the popular thing. Like gone to buffets and, and the, you know, Mississippi was very popular there. And so many of those that migrated to, you know, Illinois and areas like that, but still a tradition and talking about that. And I always laugh at all the arguments go back and forth <laughs> of those type of traditions. So I was like, that's some people have that tradition and some don't. So it's very interesting. <laughs> that is funny. My, my original city, you know, what I consider this to be my hometown is New York. Yeah. And so as a big dense city with several waves of fairly recent immigration and I'm speaking yeah. before our generation but waves from different areas um over time certain dishes have become incorporated into yeah. the culture there um and so you're aware that they came from maybe another country but it becomes a local food Yes. <laughs> you know, what you were saying about it. And uh, I notice here in Italy, an interesting thing is happening with um, the emotional connection to food. Uh, there are people who um, make tamales for uh, tamales. You might say tamales, but I just say tamales. Sorry yeah. about the um, <laughs> anglicizing it. But um, there are people who make that around Christmas time, the yeah. end of the year, right? Um, fine. That's in the U.S., and people will have that tradition in their families. Well, in the past few years, here in Italy, in Rome, someone who makes really good tamales has popped up and is now able to make them and sell them if you want. And so people within a community, I'm aware of this within, for example, the American community and English speaking community within the city, um, they're starting to order these yeah. and it's becoming now a yearly thing. Oh, this is wonderful. No direct cultural connection, huh. but it's becoming a cultural connection by way of the other things that they have in common. Yeah. And, it, and it's really interesting because it's not something you can, you know, you can't really get it here. It's not something you're ever going to find right. unless someone knows how to make it and will exactly. get it to you. So it's fascinating how that, then this becomes a new tradition for people who had no reason to have an attachment to that that um, recipe. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, that how and you know I know you talked about this. Like I was just reading your article um, about the what was it called that you had the food in its own kind of language. That article, which I love that article by the way. Um, Oh, thank you. Thank yeah. you. But, but yeah. that is it. I think yeah. certainly in fiction, what is fiction? So in theory, it's an invented story. Um, but what I love, and, and this is a huge difference for me between fiction and the kind of writing I did um, professionally for years, and that is the idea that Again, you make up stuff, you can follow your imagination, which I very, I'm very much a person of the imagination. Yeah. I can start with Catherine sitting in a room and before you know it, you're across the world, you're doing something <laughs> else. Um, but in the end, we're always writing about human emotion. Mm -hmm. And we know that even from writers who write science fiction or dystopian scenarios, they're ultimately writing 
about current emotions, current challenges, fears, worries, joys. Um, and so I love that idea. And certainly food, drink, the things we consume, the things that define our kitchens, our tables, our communities, our agricultural communities, all of that is about how we identify ourselves. And it's also about the worries we have. Mm-hmm. If you want to talk about things that are grown, things that are no longer available, yeah. um, you know, um, based on the changes that are occurring, whether economically or in terms of the weather. Yeah, um, yeah. But gosh, you couldn't get more Southern than bourbon. Exactly, <laughs> very much so. And um, yeah, that's, which is in a sense that, originated from Ireland in itself that you know whiskey there and how it was established here you know from Irish immigrants as well um and that history and and I was thinking as I was reading that article um thinking back the last couple years like with the pandemic and how we've been able to connect and I was thinking I made some amazing friends through online communities because we started early on I think probably around beginning of the pandemic we started calling these family dinner nights where we would have themed dinners I mean and share recipes and just post pictures of you know we would pick a night or somebody would pick a theme and you know everyone's invited you know even if you didn't cook you could go pick up something from a fast food restaurant or something but then being able to share recipes through that that was I you know I think it, and it got a lot of us through that connection through food got a lot of us through this last couple of years of not being able to connect with people, but having that connection through food is such an amazing way to be able to connect in that. And um, like, even I had a previous author on here, she wrote a cookbook from it all called food and politics. Cause we connected through, through so much through politics as well um, through us politics. And it's been fascinating. So much of her recipes come from, uh, her family as well and how she's like I never she was never much of a cook before the pandemic and she's like well well, I gotta start cooking now so and she takes phenomenal pictures of her food and then decided to put a cookbook out there and it's it's beautiful like it originates the stories of her family and how she connected through people through this way as well and yeah it's (laughs) oh I'm writing that down absolutely isn't this what's this is what's wonderful I think that there's this kind of um you know, if you love reading, you already know that there's a kind of energy that is connected to a book and that passes between people who love books or stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mostly positive, but uh, essentially books help people to start conversations. They can also start arguments over books, yeah. but oh, yeah. it's usually a kind of a, it can often be a very positive energy. Um, oh, I didn't like that, or I didn't like what that person said, you know, but it's still an engaging with one another in an ideal world. Um, and it's funny, as soon as you mentioned this, I'm writing it down yeah, in politics, yes. you know, add that to my TBR pile that is now yeah. about to topple over. Yeah. Um, and speaking of that, that, I know when I started this book, I wasn't, you know, read the description of it. And I was like, well, this just sounds fascinating, but I wasn't really expecting myself to find such a connection with especially with Benny like I really found myself so much connection um when it came to her one being honest with who she really was with her family and struggling to find her place in life that was something that you know I'm 38 years old kind of really starting my career because I finally found my direction and I've, I've jumped from jobs to jobs 
obviously state to state now and and also being honest with my you know being who I am as a as a lesbian that coming out like I love my parents and they were all, all very accepting but they were the last to know because I had that internal struggle of like kind of what Benny had is like being able to come out to your parents and try to explain somebody that has a whole different vision of your life that they have for you because they want to make what they went through so much better for you. And then, you know, my parents went through a lot to get to where they are. And so I was like, will they still accept me? Cause I'm not going to meet their vision. And so it took me a long time to, but in reading that, like when she talks, goes to the alcoholic nonsense meeting and just kind of blurts out because she felt like I needed to say it to somebody that I could feel like wasn't going to judge me. And I was like, I kind of went through that moment where I went through some friends that I just met and I was like, you know what? I'm going to lay it out on the line. This is who I am. This is, I just met these people. They can judge me for who I am or for what. It doesn't matter. And, and which actually helped me come out in the long run. But I've really found myself connecting to Benny and that. And, and I loved that about that story and how she was able to have, without giving too much of the book, have some, her explanation explained in the long run of who she is and, I'm glad you liked her. And and yes, of course, um, being careful with spoilers. Yeah. The thing about Benny that I found interesting, um, I, I, I it it was a challenge sometimes, but I love Benny because she um she never once questions who she feels herself to be, mm. but she struggles probably more than any other character. Yeah. Why? External pressure, external labels, who you're supposed to be on the basis of her love life, on the basis of her professional aspirations, on the basis of her appearance, because she identifies as African-American, but is very light skinned. So then there are these perceptions. So there are all these things, but the thing about Benny also that I loved was she's this really tall, beautiful, almost elegant looking woman. She has a bit of a chip on her shoulder, actually, by the time she gets to talking to her parents. Yeah. But also, you know, she's just the same little girl. Yeah. She's just she's just a little girl who wants, yeah. you know, who worships her big brother and wants to be loved and wants to be accepted. Yeah. yeah. Um, in the end, she's just who she always was. Yeah. But how does her sense of how to live in the world um, shift? because of all of the external pressures each of us has to navigate the world and so she develops really um a kind of armor that can create issues as well and but isn't that true no that is true for so many people and for so many different reasons but ultimately the ultimately the fear of not being loved the fear of not being accepted the fear of having to explain yourself um and the what I do like about a number of the characters, excuse me, my um, earpiece, a number of the characters in this book, they're all different from Benny, but they are similar in that, again, they are mostly people who they never question who they are at the core, yeah. but they're struggling because they're just, you know, constantly swimming upstream against what other people tell them they should be doing. If you say you are a blue person, well, then you need to do X, Y, Z. Yeah. Love A, B, C, and do the, follow this profession and uh, study in a certain way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a universal, isn't it? Yeah. We're social animals and we grow up in cultures and 
we're constantly shifting, trying to figure out how to go forward. Yeah, exactly. And and it kind of she's very much in the long run like her mother in a lot of ways. And I always tease my mom that her and I we've butted heads throughout the years, but she's also still probably my closest person in my life. And because we are so similar in a lot of ways and why that's why we butted heads and she had such a high expectation having that need to meet that. And I think so many people, especially daughters, <laughs> can relate to that a lot, trying to meet the expectations of that. And um, in this book, is there a character that you found yourself truly being able to relate to? Because you had some beautiful characters, so very different, as you said, but also similar in a lot of ways in their experiences. Is there one that you felt that you related more to as you were writing it? <laughs> Thank you. I think a couple of the characters, because again, we have a few a, a few characters who have one idea of their identity and their sense of self, and other people expect different things, and they're almost code switching, you know, emotionally and socially in the world. Yeah. Um, Benny, definitely the idea that um, the parents. You know, the parents just worry. Parents worry about their children. Parents worry about their children, right? And so the idea that they see this super bright, talented daughter, uh, but their daughter isn't quite, isn't doing things quite the way they expected, whereas their son is. And so that sets up a, a conflict. But I think the main thing is that she, um, Benny, has eclectic, interests in terms of professional and creative interests and so I think it can be difficult sometimes when a person has a number of different interests mm-hmm. to be taken seriously if they shift yeah. in the over the course of their lives especially yeah. when they're young you were talking about trying different jobs you know you have to make a living yeah then you might try something that interests you but maybe you need to switch because the opportunities aren't there or we know what happens to Benny I won't go into that it's yeah. a spoiler but why does she uh, change suddenly? But she also has other interests. So I would say that maybe I identify with the idea of the person who has different interests in life, a variety of interests. They might not be good at everything, yeah. but they may be interested in trying a couple of different things. Then you have Mabel. Mabel studied art history. And the next thing you know, she's become a kind of food guru. How did that happen? So again, but it was a logical progression for her from one kind of interest and her interest in history and art and and objects from the past, foods from the past that brought her forward. So I would say... um, I would say, yeah, that idea, that idea of people expecting one thing from you. Yeah. And you feeling very strongly that you need to deliver something else. And each person has something to contribute to our world, but it can be quite a challenge. I think, especially for younger people, if you feel you have one thing to contribute and you can really do something for yourself, your community, other people, but Others are telling you that, no, you need to contribute in a different direction. I think, you know, we often hear a great deal about how ageist societies can be and how the older you get, the more difficult it can be in certain respects. But I have to say, as someone who's a mature professional and a late bloomer (laughs) um, in the writing world, 
that um, there are just so many things. It is true that when, when you're younger, there's just so much pressure, but also so much promise. Yeah. You know, you have so much that you can do. And sometimes we're given so many choices. If we're lucky, there are so many choices that it can be intimidating. You know, it can be intimidating. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. And it is. And I, I did find myself relating to Mabel as well, because, you know, I my degree I got in history, was planning to be a teacher and I was like, yeah, I kind of fell into history and I through teachers that I professors that I absolutely loved. And it's funny, he one of my professors is an archaeologist and he does the food and wine of Pompeii. So his research and he goes every summer to Pompeii and does archaeological digs there and studies the food and wine and um, his influence on that. And as I was reading your article, I was like, you know, this would make a really good, interesting podcast or maybe even a book about how we've all connected through food and those opportunities and how that progression. And I'm thinking, I was like, that's, you know, that's something that's always interesting because I love food. I love to cook. Um, it's one of my favorite things to do as a relaxation and exploring new recipes from other heritages, but also at the same time, the history aspect of it researching that history of it, like Mabel going into the origins of food and why she doesn't use certain things in her recipes or what led her to creating that. Um, so yeah, I really, I really connected to that as well. Cause I was like, that would be really interesting. Cause you don't really, a lot of people don't really even think about the history of some of the origins of where this item came from. Same thing with a black cake. It started in Europe, but it's transformed into something else. It's like, what other recipes that have, um done that as well like okra starting from africa and black black eyed peas and being brought here like one of my favorite cookbooks that i do have is jubilee and it talks a lot about that the origins of uh so many of african-american culture foods soul foods and where the origins of that has come from how they been, have been able to have so have some of that connection from you know obviously they don't know where their history is coming from anymore because they've lost that in a lot of ways but still having some of that food connection, there is still that connection, which is very fascinating to me. <laughs> yes, and, and one of that, the basic um, discussions that take, um, that takes, you know, this discussion takes place in Black Cake is that idea of if it's your local tradition, take a moment and look back, it may have come from somewhere else. <laughs> um, in Jamaica, one of the most popular um, varieties of mango. I mentioned Jamaica because I lived there for a number of years as a child. One of the most popular varieties is the Bombay mango. We call it the Bombay mango. And um, if you really think about it, the mangoes in any case, no matter what the variety started somewhere else. Yeah. So it, it is interesting to see um, that things that we consider to be traditions, they are traditions, yeah. but they might not be indigenous. And yeah. that's one of the things that I would say I became sensitized to that also by the fact that I did work within a UN agency that deals with food to a great extent. And one of the things they did was um, look at, at ancient traditions in producing certain kinds of food, especially if they were sustainable then, and there's a question of whether you can go back to that and continue to do that in small communities to better use your natural resources, water, soil, et cetera. 
And that does that did have me thinking. Also here in Italy, we have, um, you know, we have grains that go back into the Iron Age, basically. Um, and so it's fascinating yeah. to see those connections. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned peas in the, that article, and I was like, I had no idea peas came from the <laughs> Roman times. I studied Roman history. I was like, huh, that's, that's interesting. But they don't use it as often nowadays. Uh, when I think of peas, I definitely think of more U.S., anymore because of so many recipes that do use peas especially uh, you know split pea soup especially <laughs> such a yeah. southern and north you know american style soup i think of i was like i wonder where the origins of that comes from yeah <laughs> it's very interesting <laughs> where i live there are split peas here mm-hmm. but people don't i think they're beginning to do it now but in general they don't make that creamy thick soup that we make when we talk about split pea soup, yeah. which I love. And I realize there are two yeah. kinds of people. Either you don't like the soup or you love it. I <laughs> yes, love it. Me too. I'm a lover of it too. <laughs> yeah. So the first time I made it in Italy for friends, it was a big deal. It was, oh, what is this? Oh, this is lovely. Oh, this is great. They called it in Italian a kind of cream, this cream of um, split pea soup. And and so that was funny. It's funny to see how the very same ingredient, there is no yeah, difference, right? <laughs> is used differently. They're more likely to just drop it into a soup, but not make a, a puree or a cream out of it. Yeah. And that's culture. That's culture meeting the agriculture. Yeah, that is. I love that. <laughs> um, so without giving too much away of this book, Black Kate, do you plan a sequel or an extension of some of these characters in a second book? Or did you feel like it where you left it, which I loved where you left it, but I can also see where a sequel would come in. Do you plan that? Or is that something you're just going to move on from these characters? I will never say never. But you know, these characters came to me in my imagination, yeah. but then I followed them. And now the book is written. So, you know, you have this book and yes, they're working on a series that is based on the book. But the bottom line is to me, the characters are out there. They're now living their own lives, but it's true that there are things that have, we don't know what's going to happen to Byron and Benny. And we don't know what's going to happen to a couple of the other people they meet along the way. Um, Even though we have a sense of maybe closure on a couple of the issues. And what's interesting is, I wonder about what will happen to them, but I also think about a couple of the other characters and wonder how did they get to be where they were in their yeah. lives? Yeah. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if I get back to that in future writing. Right now I'm working on another book, which is multi-generational, which um, does go back and forth in time, which does uh, raise... Um, as a subject, the importance of um, seemingly everyday objects or household objects and the value, again, in terms of carrying stories yeah. and maybe concealing mysteries. But it's not Black Cake and yeah. it's not a sequel. So um, so who knows? Maybe the next time. Yeah, I, well, I look forward to that book, too, as well, because I, I love your writing and it's um and you know, a lot of people struggle with various stories going back and forth, but like one of my favorite authors, Ken Follett, he does that where he, so many characters are intertwined. And I love that intertwined, like how they all connect, like his whole um, series that he did about the 19th century and World War One, World War II, and then the Cold War. 
and how these continuation stories of these families that are all connected and yeah so that type of writing I've always been intrigued about especially the multi-generational like about families always fascinate me and family history has always fascinated me so I look forward to that type of writing from more from you <laughs> thank you yeah other um uh any authors or writers that have influenced you over the years or that you just absolutely love or? <laughs> you know, I have very eclectic reading tastes. And so I just, I love books across a very broad range of writing. I would not say that any particular author influenced me heavily, for example, in writing Black Cake. Sure. But I, I do tend to respond very strongly, strongly to contemporary authors who can be both lyrical in their writing and innovative. So I'm going to name an oldish book, Sorry. Beloved, Beloved oh. by Toni Morrison. I still, yeah, and I still remember when I read Beloved that I was immediately struck from the very first line, which I had to read three times. I thought, ah. <laughs> I was immediately struck by how innovative the language felt. And it still does feel that way. Um, I love the writing of George Saunders, okay. who I find um, has a different way of bringing us into the interior lives of people um, and uses language beautifully. I love a really rich, multi-generational story like Amy Tan's The Joy Luck Club. That's one of my favorites. And and perhaps if 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 one were to say, is there any story, I wouldn't say that, I didn't think of it directly, but it, is there any story that makes you think, what could Black Kick be like in terms of the content, in terms of the actual heart of the story? I think of, of The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan because you have mothers and daughters from two different parts of the world, obviously two different generations, and the mothers had this whole life, you know, so often in, certainly in American culture, we, we have an issue in which when you're just uh, starting in adulthood, you, you often feel that your parents can't, your elders can't understand you, obviously, you know, they've lived lives, their lives differently, but let's turn it on its head. And we have people who can't even begin to imagine what life was like for their elders. And uh, the Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan, you know, plays that up very nicely. The idea of this entire universe of stories but that once told help the younger generation to understand a bit more about where their mothers were coming from. Um, but, you know, I love, I love, you know, John Grisham, for example. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, but here's an example. Am I I'm allowed to say that I love you, John Absolutely. Grisham? No, yeah. no I didn't know. <laughs> I love his writing. Here's an example of the kind of writing. Maybe I, I don't think I write this way, but I love his writing because I love writers who are eclectic. Yeah. Here is a person who can tell you a sort of a crime-based thriller story, right? Yeah. And keeps you going. Yeah. But in fact, I recognize him as being a Southern writer mm -hmm. because there's a richness to the detail yeah. and to the descriptions. There are always these descriptions of just the environment, you know, the land, um, what it was like to grow up there, being kids. Also, you see something like Delia Owens' uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. I, I, I do 
respond to stories that describe the environment in rich detail. And, and they don't have to be what we would call an exotic environment. Mm -hmm. In my book, you have some descriptions of people who live in the Caribbean, but it doesn't have to be in another country. It can be right in your hometown. You know, what do you smell? What do you feel? How is your whole world affected yeah. by the color of the soil in the town where you live? Yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm not really answering your um, question about authors in a very direct way because no, you know, no. I find so much in so many different kinds yeah. of authors. Yeah. I, yeah. And I'm, I'm very much the same way. It's like, I have a very eclectic, I was looking through my reading list for the last year because my friend's like, well, what are your top three books you read this year? And I was like, well, that's a loaded question. And they were all very different books in that sense. And, um, and from different authors, like I've been, my mom turned me on to Louise Penny's whole Armand Gamache <sighs> Spectre Gamash series. Yes. Which I love. But also at the same time, I read um a Janet Ivanovich. She started a new, which I've always loved her books, just as something fun to read. Cause when you're just feeling overwhelmed, but I can't fall asleep without reading. So I ran random silly books to read. And um, but yeah, it's that same eclectic. And I know you've mentioned a couple of times about your to be read pile. So obviously you have one, which I do too. What are some of the books that are in that pile? Oh my <laughs> goodness. <shelves> and like mine. <laughs> of course I should be prepared, but without looking at the list, I'm going to forget <laughs> for sure. Oh my goodness. Um, I'm more likely to think of what I've just been reading. Oh yeah, my goodness. There's so, many, well, there's so many books. I'm embarrassed to say that my to be read pile has things that have been out for a year. Oh yeah. Two yeah. years. Um, <laughs> and and Yes. <laughs> in contemporary literature, I'm noticing that there are a number of books that are coming up from authors who have written around the environments in the Caribbean. And I'm very interested in that because um, for a few decades, we've been turning to the same authors. And so it's interesting to see new stuff coming up. Um, so some of the, the young authors who are writing around the Caribbean, um, anything, there are some slightly dystopian titles out there also that are interesting. Here's a title that is at the top of everyone's list. It's been all over the place and I haven't read it yet. And <laughs> it's really next on my to be read pile. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Gabrielle Zevin tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow which is um absolutely so i'm i'm interested in that that's one book it's i've got on my to be read file <laughs> it's yeah. in my, i get that <laughs> yeah. and um i i when i think back you know we were talking about the books that we um ha that we have read and they just go there they range broadly across genre and I was just thinking of things that I've read in the past year another example which is I loved this book and it was very popular it can be both entertaining and very probing um, and a lot of people are reading it now it's at the top of a of a bookstores list in the UK and it's been at the top of lists it's a number one New York Times bestseller is Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I've been, re I've been recommending it to friends in Italy because it's already out in Italian. So yeah. that's one book. 
um, that I read this year. And then a very different book is um, Greenland by David Santos. And um, that's a complete, I don't even know how to begin to describe <laughs> that book. It takes place, it's looking at a relationship in the past and also dealing with a writer's dilemma in the present. It is both, um, more than both, it is esoteric, it is very down to earth, it is funny, it probes interesting issues of how we identify people. I definitely um, found it interesting when they talk about identity, the ways in which people um, are lumped together because of the way they look when in fact culturally they may be very different, reminding us that there is no one way to be anything, no yeah. one way to be a woman, no one way to be black, no one way, right? So um, that's another book that I really enjoyed. One book that I loved, and um, it's definitely up there on a lot of people's lists, is Notes. I want to say Notes on an Execution. I should know, or is it Notes from an Execution? We should Google and help me here, but it's by <laughs> Dania. It's by, it's by Dania Kafka, and it's, um, it's just brilliant, I think. It's a tough um no, it's book. on an execution, yeah. Yeah, on an execution. It's a tough book because the title hints at it. It sure. deals with someone who is facing execution for a series of murders. But it is a book that is that that cuts across so many aspects of our lives. Mm -hmm. Growing up, um, motherhood, struggles, uh, friendship. So it's surprising also, you know? And um, I'm, oh, I'm just trying to think. I've read so much. <laughs> I read a book. May I recommend a book? Absolutely. Please do. <laughs> that has not yet come out, but it's coming out in January. So it can be pre-ordered or by the time you get through the holidays, <laughs> you walk into a bookstore and you're actually awake again. Yes. You will see this book because I loved it. I, it's, it it's one of the best books I read all year. And it's called The Bandit Queens, The Bandit Queens, with a bunch of really unusual female protagonists. And it's fun, it's laugh out loud, and it's also sadly serious. Yeah. So it's very much a book about women's interior lives and then how they navigate their communities. And, and it, the short version is it's about this woman whose husband has disappeared and everyone believes she's killed him yeah and we're not really sure what happened you know eventually you find out but the point is she's ostracized because of this she's stigmatized in her community um and at the same time she comes to discover that it's given her a kind of cachet hmm. so in a community where being a woman and being a widow might not be um, to her advantage, and she has some problems, she comes to discover that there's an element of um, fearful respect for her that gives her a boost. And, and that's part of what's funny, but it also puts her in some very difficult situations. So the Bandit Queens, the Bandit Queens by mm, uh, Perini Shroff, um, is something that comes out in January. And this is one of the perks of being a novelist. Every once in a while, people send you books ahead of time and there's just no way I have time to read them all. <laughs> but this was one that I did and that was a joy. 
Yeah. So I something wrote that one down for sure. And I was like, I'm definitely going to add that one to my list. <laughs> so that's for someone else's to be read. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love I also, that. <laughs> yeah. I also want to read Michelle Obama's The Light We Carry, which I haven't read yet. I know everyone else is getting to it, but I haven't yeah. yet. Yes, I have it. It's in my pile. <laughs> yeah, that one. Um, well, speaking of, what was your reaction when you found out Black Cake made Obama's uh, Summer to Reread list? Because that's where I got this suggestion from. So I can't oh. imagine what that feeling must have been like. <laughs> You know, well, first of all, thank you. I mean, it's it's great to hear that you actually mm-hmm. discovered it because of that list. Um, I was stunned, but I also felt uh, emotional, I must admit, yeah. because um, I had no idea. Uh, the list is very short. I think there were only maybe five or six books. Yeah. He does this every year. No one has any idea what he's <laughs> going to mention. But um, consider the source. A person uh, who has very eclectic reading tastes, yes, yes. as do I, as do you. <laughs> and um, and I love that because he's reading across all sorts of things. He has a couple of nonfiction titles that I need to get to. He mentioned Gabrielle Zevin's book, which mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow also. I, I think, did he include the family chow? I shouldn't be misquoting Barack Obama I, here. But, you know, that's another book, too. That, so, yeah, so I love that um, that he reads all sorts of stuff. You have no idea what's going to come up. And I was touched. I thought, wow. <laughs> I'd love to have a conversation with him about that. You know, thank you. Right. But... But in the end, in the end, um, it actually doesn't matter. What matters is whoever reads the book. Do they make a connection? Yeah, yeah. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I hear from people every day, you know, through the social media who have made some kind of connection, either to the idea of misunderstandings and relationships, um, the secrets that emerge later that change your view of who you are. The, the language of food, which is what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation and, and, and what that means emotionally. Um, and so it's a conversation, you know, I've written the book, but once you publish a book and it reaches other readers, it's like beginning, beginning a conversation. Only I'm no longer part of the conversation. I've said my bit yeah. and other people have other things to say. And I think that's wonderful. I'm a reader first. Yeah, um, I'm a reader first, and I don't even expect this book to be for everyone. Uh, yeah. Why should it be? Right, exactly. But, yeah. Right, but I'm so pleased. I was so pleased that Barack Obama liked it, and I'm so pleased that um, you like it. Yeah, there's. I've got a list. I've. It's gonna end up in a few people's Christmas gifts this year for <laughs> Thank sure. You. You're Thank, you for keep- Thank you for keeping me in business. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I'm all about sorting authors out there because that was actually one of my reasons for wanting to do this type of podcast it's like I wanted to reach out to authors that didn't have you know that are coming up and people need to know about and um yeah when I was reading this I was like I three or four people popped into mind I was like they would absolutely love this book and one who's actually opened up a bookshop in California that wants to focus on uh black and women of color and people of color in unknowns and so that she's has the space now and just released it and opening up I think hopefully by next spring and I was like she's she was on the top of my list when I was reading this one because she just she loves food and 
had such a great family, like connection with her family. I was like, I think she would really enjoy this. So she, sorry, I'm not saying her name because she, <laughs> she'll, because it's early. Yeah. Oh, but, it's Christmas oh. present. She's going to know, but, right. <laughs> yeah. but, but for sure, when her store opens up, do get in touch and do send a note and, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> um, because it, it sounds as though it's very interesting. What I do love about contemporary fiction, and this is true of any age, but certainly in the times in which we're living is, I'm not sure that my um, novel, peopled primarily by people of color, um, African-Americans, but not only, Caribbeans, but not only, and not only people of color, but I'm not sure that my sort of choral polyphonic book of all of these different stories of people coming together and short chapters that last only a paragraph in some cases would have found a home I don't know 20 years ago or even 10 years ago I love that contemporary fiction allows writers to bring something new to the conversation in the end we're always coming back to the same themes who are we who do we want to be how do we relate to people how do we live in our world Exactly, um, and we need books more than uh, more than ever. Yeah. We need the classics. We do, but I love, yeah, but I love that there are new voices coming up. You know, I do too. And like I said, when I was first started reading this, I was like, I'm a white woman. How am I going to connect to this book? But as I delve deeper and deeper into, especially Benny's story, and then Mabel's Marble's story, and it's just like, wow, I've really gained connections. And I think that's something that's important in this day and age that we can find connections finding somebody's history that you would think okay i'm not from the caribbean i am not (laughs) you know obviously not black or person woman of color how am i going to connect to this and you know but then reading family histories and heritage and i was like you can connect this you know and just being able to read other people's perspectives i think that's such an important gain that better understanding of this and it's one of the reasons i love love this book so much and I said it's it's in my it was mentioned in my top three my friend asked me and I was like and that's because it was so fresh in my mind because like I said I reread it and very few books that I do reread except for ones that I've you know easy reads and this one I wasn't it was difficult definitely difficult in parts because there's a lot of emotion to it that you find in other ways that some can connect to it and you know without giving too much of it away that but there's some a lot of different ways somebody could connect in this book, I think, and ways that I don't think that many people would expect as well for that. Yeah. So, so that's the thing, you know, it's interesting because certainly as a person of color, um, I've heard many other people talk about how, you know, when they were kids and reading stories that they enjoyed, they didn't always see someone who seemed to be like them. But um, that didn't mean that they didn't enjoy the stories. You know, I grew up, I still read books about people who in theory, on the page, on paper, are nothing like me. (laughs) But they are everything like me. Because it's still coming down to our aspirations, our hopes, our joys, the things we have lost, our struggles. It's clear that with every new generation of fiction writers, you hope to see something that adds to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yes, more stories about people who look or sound or live like people 
whose images and lives have not always been represented on the page. Yeah. But the more you bring new people in, the more you tell new stories about previous generations from other parts of the world or within your own country, but other communities, the more you see the commonalities. Exactly, yeah. And I love that. And that's, you know, I work in literacy. Um, one of the organizations I work with closely with is Imagination Library of Dolly Parton's. And she, one book that everybody always gets, the starter book is The Little Engine That Could. And that's such a book that everyone, I think, as a little young child can relate to. And she has such diverse books anymore, like looking through her list. It's such a beautiful thing that they are so diverse first styles so everybody has a chance to relate but starting with that one book which was one that she used to read to her father and it was his favorite book and she started imagination because he himself couldn't read made it you know into his 60s and realizing that he never really could read and that was something that her driving force behind started imagination library and starting with that book and i was like everyone can find a way to relate to that one book in how to come over obstacles and everything but and then she goes from there and you get ranges from you know babies books all the way up to when they start kindergarten and they all start with the same book um i'm ready for kindergarten book and which i love it's so cute but yeah and there's we read so many different types of books that connect but there are you know you might not be able to see yourself in it but can you find that connection? And that's, you know, but it's also still important to be able to find books that you can see. And I love that more and more are getting recognized for that. And like I was shopping for, you know, <laughs> books because I love to give books as gifts. And my very good friend, her, she's a stepmom to um, two biracial children. And I wanted to be able to find books that they can relate to as well. And because he's five and she's nine. And so their experiences, but also there are some books that I've always found touching that I'm including in those gifts as well. That's, you know, somebody else that's influenced them as well, that, you know, being able to find that connection as well too is important. <laughs> I, I, I do love the idea of sort of going against stereotypes um, and it's not always what we expect. So you have um, Byron, for example, who's an African-American man. He's the, we have the brother and sister in the yeah. book, Black Cake and Byron. <clears throat> excuse me, is an African-American man. Um, and there are two things that make him a little different from people we normally see on the page. One is his work and the other is his favorite sport, right? So what's his work? He's an ocean scientist. And then what's his sport? He's a surfer in California. He's yeah. a Southern Californian boy. That's what he is. Yeah. He grew up surfing. But what's also fun, as we know, is that it was his mother who taught him to surf. And she came from another country. So yeah. although she had a secret past, it wasn't a secret that she came from the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And so you have these Caribbean parents raising these California kids. Um, and that kind of resembles um, profiles in my family without actually resembling any specific person. The idea that, you know, you have parents from another country, you have kids growing up very much rooted in their local identities and doing the things that local kids do, but put that on the page and you don't always see that for only one reason, that Byron is African-American. Yeah, yeah. And he brings that up, it's like, when you think of surfers, obviously, I think most people do think of the Southern California, which is going to be, you know, <laughs> Zach Taylor or Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. That's the perfect image. Blonde, 
muscular surfer type. But even when I was thinking, when you mentioned growing up in the Caribbean, surfing there, it's like, even my thinking of surfing, I always think of Hawaii. And I was like, Caribbean, because you always kind of, people always say, oh, it's flat. And I was like, not always. There's waves there and there's surfing opportunities. So when you brought up that, I was like, well, yeah, of course there's that. And then surfing in Africa, like um, my one of my dad's favorite movies was uh, Endless Summer. And going back all over the world that they go in Endless Summer too as well. It's like Africa. And like, you don't think of surfing in Africa, but of course they do. Asia as well. Asia. And, yeah yes they were doing it long before anyone else was exactly they had many more people and they found a way which is fascinating yeah it is interesting that we we have our stereotypes it's not because stereotypes uh might contain an element of truth yeah but maybe not yeah and and now certainly an interesting thing that happened um again i'm sort of a low-key social media person. I basically repost, repost, repost. <laughs> you, I'm not anyone's model for social media, but one of the wonderful things that happens on Instagram is when people, you know, write you little messages about their experiences. And one woman that popped up is a young Black woman who surfs. Yeah. And I just get it, you know, every once in a while she's posting things and I, I see these amazing images and I love that because she got in touch because she'd read the book yeah. and connected. And I thought, ah, you see, because I'm here, <laughs> you didn't invent me. I'm here. Yeah. And there are other people and there are people in Santa Monica surfing, but um, yeah. again, what do we put on the page? And I don't know if you experience that too. I mean, that's a whole other conversation when you talk about also people's social lives and love lives and stereotypes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm of how a person should live, the problems they should have, for example, if they're queer. You know, I think it's, um, this is where sometimes fiction helps us more than the nonfiction because you get to just wander and explore, but, you know, bit by bit introduce ideas that make other people realize that there are all these other ways to live what you think is one identity. Yeah, and that's, this is very true and it's how and I think it's one of the positive things about social media now there's a lot of issues with it obviously but there's that positivity of finding out different people's histories that you think you know queer lives of you know that have uh, black friends white friends that have lived in you know the south or they've lived in China or Italy or you know, all different around the world and how, you know, we all connect with this one identity, but then their experiences are so different and finding out that experiences and that you can be like, well, I had that similar experience. I didn't realize that was something else that somebody else was going through and being able to connect that way, which is such a, a beautiful way to be able to connect through finding out, you know, like you say, it could be a fiction story, but like, well, that happened to me. I can connect with that. Like with Benny coming out to her parents, I mean, not knowing that they, you know, obviously knew too much away, how they reacted. It was very different to what my parents, but I had those similar feelings of coming out. Like, what if my parents reacted that way? And, and I think that was one of the things that when I was coming out, stopped me from coming out completely in the beginning of why it took me so long. Like I started with people I didn't know as well. And then it slowly moved to people like, you know, some of my family members knew my brother, and we connected that way very well and then you know my parents 
my parents and my two best friends were kind of the last to know because you have this image in your head like what if they don't react to that well knowing even though you know them very well other uh, views I was like there's always that hope that's like, mm -hmm. so yeah that connection yeah. I wasn't expecting to have in this book and I loved that about that <laughs> and of course the the whole point is the relationships that matter to you the most you don't want to hear something that's going to make you feel um less than you would like to feel you know less uh, es uh esteemed in in someone's eyes but here's the fun thing about benny i uh, the fun thing about benny benny <laughs> benny goes through a lot yeah because because there's been a misunderstanding also um between her and her parents so she's estranged we know that at the beginning of the story byron and benny once inseparable as brother and sister um, haven't seen each other for years yeah. and that has happened in part because of the difficulties of communication within the family but the interesting thing is as they come together and they must face the fact that their mother has just passed away and left this left them this eccentric bequest a small black cake sitting in her freezer and this lengthy recording in which she basically reveals that she had a hidden past the interesting thing is Benny now, who has kept a lot to herself for fear of being rejected or because she felt that her parents were not understanding her growth, her path, yeah. is now discovering that her mother kept a much more yeah. to herself yeah, than <laughs> Benny could possibly keep. Yeah. And so it's interesting to see again, you know, and, and the, 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 one of the, the sad things in the story is that, gee, if only she had known before, um, yes, perhaps it would have been easier for parents and children and brother and sister to speak to one another. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's so very true. And I don't want to keep you for too much longer because I realize you're probably busy, but I not bringing up the, the, you know, the connection they have through the black cake. Um, and I know this is a question that I usually ask for bourbon drinkers, but I switched it around um, to fit your needs. And I actually think it fits well because, you know, they're supposed to connect over this black cake that their mom has made for them. Um, if there's anyone in your life or that you always wanted to connect with, whether living or past, if you could share a slice of black cake with, who would it be? <laughs> oh, you know, and it's such a good question. And I've never really thought about it that way. I think <laughs> that when I have made black cake, I'm sharing it with people now in Italy yeah. who have no such tradition. You know, it uses rum and port, two yeah. things which are not produced here. Yeah. <laughs> people seem to appreciate because they're always curious about food. Um, so with whom would I share a piece of black cake? I think I already have. Ah, let me tell you this. <laughs> that, that younger family member who wanted my mother's <laughs> black cake recipe the next time that I went to the United States, this was before I started writing this story. I remember that I thought, oh my goodness, I made a black cake and I actually transported it in my suitcase. Sorry, customs. Well, I mean, it's not any, it's not against any customs rules, yeah. but it's kind of a weird thing to travel with. I wrapped it up, sealed it and transported it to the United States 
to have that delivered to that younger relative because, you know, my mom wasn't around anymore and she still made the best cake, but it wasn't bad. Yeah. Oh, I can't think of who I would share this with. You. Yeah. Well, I, love that. <laughs> oh, I do have something to share with you. Take a look That's at this. True. Oh, there they Can are. Can you guess what this is? It's in the fruit soaked in port and rum there. Yes, I've already <laughs> used a portion of it, but then I have another one. So I probably have about three decent cakes um, there because I soak the fruits. I don't try to make an accelerated yes, version. Absolutely. I do what my mother did, which was, um, which is I keep the fruits soaking in rum and port yeah. for months. <laughs> and then I make a cake at the end of the year. Oh, I love that. Oh, that makes kind of my mouth water a little sound. Just thinking <laughs> <about it. laughs> You know, it's funny because um, talking about bourbon, which is not something that is made in Italy. Yeah. Um, although it's made in other Euro- well whiskey is made in other yeah. european yeah. countries and scotch whiskey and it's fascinating that bourbon really is like an evolution right because it's yeah. so specific to an to another part of the world meaning in the united states so i um i was looking up bourbon cake recipes yeah. talking about i'll share we can share <laughs> yeah. you know i can relate to the cake part yes yeah so that's <laughs> what i'm soaking it yeah yeah yeah, I love about, you know, bourbon in itself um, is the recipes that you can use with it. Like I I fit, I tried and I failed to make bourbon peanut brittle this weekend. And I've tried it a couple oh of times. Goodness. I think mostly because it's my stove doesn't work. I was like, I, I give up till I get a new stove. Mm. I will give up on that. But then I'm thinking of some of my grandma's recipes, you know, she with Christmas coming up, there's so many recipes that she would make. And um, one of our favorites is these little butterscotch haystacks, where they're like Chinese noodles, peanuts, and um, just mixed all together with peanut butter. And I was like, peanut butter whiskey would be really good. It could. Yeah. You could do it. You could do it because it would turn the flavor a little bit. Yeah. 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 So what you're saying is you cook it all together, you mix it, and then maybe you put it into a pan of some sort and then you cut it up. Is that how you do it? Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Like those little mounds of gooey deliciousness. And I was like, oh, it sounds good. So we're my dad taking my dad's fudge that he does and I'm adding bourbon to that. And yeah. And and it is a challenge because with the alcohol, of course, a lot of it burns off and you have to mix it. Yeah. And you have to cook it at fairly high temperature. Yeah. I um I'll do a rum sauce um, mm-hmm. sometimes. Since I what I do is with black cake, my mother used to steam it. Yeah. So she would um put the batter in a pan and put the pan in um another pan which had water, and that would go in the oven and it takes a long time. I do a quicker, lazier kind of version. <laughs> I bake it, yeah. but I bake it with pans of water in the oven to sort of add humidity. But because it's less moist, because my mother's cake really was more of a pudding, Mm -hmm. I then um, make a kind of sauce. So I cook the rum, you know, with butter and sugar. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Anyone (laughs) doing a cholesterol count right now? But But, you know, it takes a lot of right. It takes high temperature cooking and a lot of stirring and so forth. It's interesting. But you still, even though all the alcohol burns off, you still have that flavor. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, and with bourbon, because there's, there's like some of my favorite bourbons have a very caramelly taste to it, the vanilla. So, like there's times that 
I've replaced vanilla with just like a shot of bourbon instead. And it, it works as a counteract that cones that flavor, but you get the little pickup of the bourbon taste in it. Bourbon cake on the other hand, well, uh, it, you soak it in bourbon after it's yeah, cooked. It actually does so, have yeah, it. Yes. So it does have, yeah, yeah. After that, so yeah. You, it's not a children friendly cake <laughs> that I've done, but <laughs> yeah. So I, I have a question about bourbon and cooking before yeah. um, before we go. Yeah, sure. With this particular mixture of fruits, which I'm sort of showing to you by way of our video connection, yeah. um, the uh, the rum that is used, I use a quality rum, but it is not your 12 years aged rum that someone would drink because that is just too valuable and too precious and it's a different kind of flavor. So I wonder with bourbon, you know, I imagine you don't use the most prized because no. that would be a waste. So how does, so you use a certain kind that's very popular for food? I do. Um, for me, I use Maker's Mark because it's a sweeter bourbon and it is still a lower priced bourbon. Um, they have various levels, but just their basic Maker's Mark, um, which I don't have a bottle of. I think it's in my spice cabinet. <laughs> Yes, I, I don't even drink it anymore because it's too sweet yeah. for me. But uh -huh. yeah, because it, it blends very well in its, yeah, like I said, it's a cheaper bottle of bourbon, but it still has a sweetness, it has a good bourbon flavor to it. And if you're just starting, and this is what I always tell the people that are just starting out in the bourbon tastings, Maker's Mark is a good one to start with because it is that sweeter. It does, like, a lot of bourbons have a high spice heat to it. Um, so they have a little more kick, whereas Maker's Mark is a sweeter so it makes very well for a great barbecue sauces, caramel, bourbon caramel um, cakes as well. So that's usually the one that I always recommend as a good bourbon to cook with or and to start with as a tasting. <laughs> so are you going to do a cooking book, a cookbook? That is my plan as well. Um, I have a couple of friends that we've been contacting back and forth as well to a collaboration, but a cooking bourbon cookbook is definitely in within the next couple of years is in my plan. I've been testing recipes for it and um, hopefully I can work out this recipe for bourbon, <laughs> brittle, peanut brittle, because it's delicious when it's cooked right. I made it once and it was absolutely phenomenal. And I've since moved from that plot. So I was like, I need a better, different stove. So <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. The, the the variables, all the variables yeah. that come into play. There is, there's a lot, but it's, yeah, cooking, the bourbon cookbook um, is definitely like, if you're a fan of bacon, glazed bourbon bacon mixed with a little brown sugar, in the last two minutes oh my goodness it, brush it on and cook it in the oven and yeah it's like a candied bacon it's just, just I made it for Thanksgiving and everybody was like how are you eating this without using it for a recipe and I was like eh, I make extra <laughs> to eat and there <laughs> it would it would be great to um see the recipes and some of the stories that people share yeah connected to the recipes yeah and that's kind of what with this cookbook that I want to do, it's going to have the stories with it because that was inspired from my friend that wrote Food and Politics because the stories that she went with it, I loved. So I was like, I, I love that aspect to it. And Jubilee is like, like I said, one of my favorite cookbooks and the history and the stories with it. I, I like that aspect. I like people always complain when they talk, look on recipes online about how they got to that recipe. And it's like, I like reading that. I know they have to, it's a requirement when you're posting recipes online that you have to have a certain amount of words for it. And I was like, I like reading through that because I like how people develop recipes and how they get to that and <laughs> come up with these. And 
Yeah. yeah. And there we go again, you know, food is a language. And yeah. sometimes it's just about how you prepared something, but often it's, this was my grandmother's recipe, you know, as you said, Catherine, or um, I was trying the peanut brittle um, with bourbon on my faulty stove and ended up coming <laughs> up with another recipe. Yeah. And that's going to be the next great recipe yes. of America. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Well, um, thank you again for this. If there's anything you would like to promote, let us know. Um, but I know you have another book coming out. Is there a time frame for that? Or No, I think it's okay. still early for still that. Early. Um, you know, I think uh, it'll be up to the publisher. I think we still yeah. have a little ways to go, but okay. I'm hoping. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's basically there, but we're developing it. So um, but thank you for your interest. I'll let you know. Absolutely. And thank you again for coming on. And I, um, like I said, anybody that has not read this or feel you're getting this in the mail from me, uh, <laughs> I look forward to that for those out there. Um, but those that aren't, that aren't lucky enough to be on my Christmas list, go out and get it because it's, I highly recommend this book. It's beautiful and it's, it is emotional in parts, but um, it's definitely a wonderful read. And if you love food and just family history, it's definitely a great book to connect with. And I want to thank Charmaine again for coming on. I truly appreciate this. And hopefully we'll have you on again sometime. Talk some more food and other things. <laughs> Thanks so much, Catherine. It's been great speaking with you and be well. You as well. Thank you. <laughs> um, with the lovely Charmaine Wilkinson, I want to thank her again for joining us and absolute pleasure to be able to sit down and talk with you and coming up in part two we're going to talk about some bourbon and i got some good choices coming up for you so i hope you stay tuned thank you mm -hmm.